All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Ranting at you, as always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, now in the uh, wee hours of November 21st, which means that uh, it's just five days before annual Turkey Massacre Day, or Thanksgiving, as it is more commonly known. And uh, I've been reading a very interesting book, which I received in the mail, entitled Thanksgiving, the Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience, by Melanie Kirkpatrick, just reissued with a new introduction by the author by Encounter Books here in New York, which is a uh, very interesting uh, sort of cultural history of the holiday of Thanksgiving. She's definitely a Thanksgiving booster, Melanie Kirkpatrick, and she takes a rather dim view of the Thanksgiving dissidents. But she does have uh, an interesting chapter about them, which I'm going to do a little bit of reading from. Doesn't treat them entirely unfairly. Before we get to that, I'm just going to very briefly go over uh, some of what she describes about how the holiday actually evolved, which I did not know. I mean, Thanksgiving, you know, is something that we all, all of us Americans totally take for granted. Don't think too much about uh, how it evolved. So this was kind of interesting reading. And actually, you know, you could read more into it than, uh, than she actually overtly states in her basic narrative of the facts. What we now call Thanksgiving is um, kind of an amalgam of two earlier holidays. One was Forefathers' Day, which was established in Massachusetts in the 1700s to remember the history of the Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, into which it was later absorbed. But this did not particularly have a, uh, a Thanksgiving aspect to it. And nor was it particularly about feasting, and nor was it uh, particularly family-oriented. It was more about uh, the local patriarchs getting together in a tavern over drinks and swapping lore. And then separately, there developed, in the early years of the Republic, uh, you know, the tradition of the president declaring a day of giving thanks, which um, varied from year to year. You know, it wasn't on any particular fixed date. And there was a lot of controversy about this, actually, and uh, it seems to have become a uh, something of a political football in the um, controversies over what was at the time called sectionalism. Although I don't believe the author, Melanie Kirkpatrick, actually invokes that word, but it's kind of, to me, the obvious context where the southern states in particular were um, suspicious of federal power, ultimately because they thought that it could come to interfere with the slave system, as, of course, ultimately happened with the Civil War. But basically, it was Southerners who dissented from uh, the president declaring a, you know, a national day of Thanksgiving. And uh, Jefferson, in his term as president, actually declined to do so. And Daniel Webster, in his uh, official comments on the occasion of Forefathers Day in 1820, took the... Uh, opportunity to invade against the slave trade. And uh, the campaign to sort of bring these two traditions together and tie the National Day of Thanksgiving to the history of Plymouth Colony and to make it a national holiday on a fixed date every year 
was really the brainchild of one Sarah Josepha Hale, who was um, a magazine editor and an abolitionist, and uh, in Kirkpatrick's portrayal, an early feminist, and was influential in uh, a little piece of Americana in another rather obscure way. She actually wrote the nursery rhyme, Mary Had a Little Lamb, and she was the one who began petitioning President Lincoln to declare Thanksgiving to be a, a national holiday, which uh, finally, um, it was in 1863, although um, still on a kind of a piecemeal and de facto basis. That was when the tradition was established of, you know, a big national day of feasting and remembering the pilgrims at Plymouth and, uh, and giving thanks. That was really established uh, by Lincoln's declaration in 1863, although it was not officially a national holiday. 1863, of course, was in the middle of the Civil War, and this was uh, definitely seen as a uh, means of trying to shore up fractured national unity. Thanksgiving was finally declared an official federal holiday, and it was all formalized by Franklin Delano Roosevelt on uh, December 26th, 1941. Needless to say, around three weeks after Pearl Harbor. So certainly at a time when cementing national unity was an imperative. Okay, uh, some interesting background on one of the aspects of Thanksgiving that I've always been most alienated by. Football <laughs> and the ritual of sitting around the TV watching the game. Uh, I was not aware that you know American football actually um, has its origins in a uh, in a Thanksgiving ritual. Walter Camp, who was apparently the father of American football, traced the beginnings of the sport back to Thanksgiving Day festivities in early New England. In America, he wrote. The first football was a peculiar Thanksgiving Day custom of kicking an inflated pig's bladder around the yard of New England farmhouses to the great merriment of the younger members of the household and the occasional discomfiture of the elders. <laughs> but uh, what I really want to talk about is the holiday's association with the Native Americans and the rather idealized picture which is presented of that first Thanksgiving back in 1621. Now, Melanie Kirkpatrick acknowledges that this is an idealized picture that we've all been given. She also calls out some of the um, Thanksgiving dissidents of engaging in revisionism about the circumstances of that first Thanksgiving in Plymouth, Massachusetts, back in 1621, which, you know, some anti-Thanksgiving activists, if you will, have portrayed as having been called to give thanks for a victory or massacre over the Indians. Not so. There actually was a, uh, a feast probably held earlier. There was, there was a harvest feast probably held uh, in late August or early September, apparently, where the Puritan settlers, or pilgrims as they later came to be known, actually did sit down and shared food with members of the local Wampanoag Indigenous Confederation. But that proved to be a brief moment of amity, and things uh, shortly thereafter got very ugly indeed. The two uh, Indian personalities most associated with the story, well, first there is Squanto, or Tisquantum, as it actually was, 
a member of the Patushet people, one of the um, constituent tribes of the Wampanoag Confederacy, who famously helped the Puritan settlers get through that uh, first rough winter of 1620 to 1621 and taught them how to farm and to hunt in this strange new environment they were in. What you don't learn in school is that the reason Squanto could establish a rapport with these English colonists and could speak English is that he had earlier been abducted to England by raiders and was held there as a slave before he managed to secure his freedom, make his way back across the ocean, and return to his people. The other indigenous personage associated with the story is Massasoit, who was the chief of the Wampanoag, who apparently attended that first Thanksgiving in probably late August or early September of 1621 at Plymouth and brought a uh, a great store of venison for the feast. But again, this was just a brief moment of amity, and it was actually the son of Massasoit who would become the central figure in the bloodiest of the Indian Wars in New England. Not the uh, the first. The first was actually the Pequot War of 1636 to 1637. I should make clear a little bit something of the uh, geography here. The uh, significant indigenous groups of the period were the Wampanoag, who were on the uh, the coast of Massachusetts and still are today. We'll have more to say about that later. Cape Cod and environs. The Mohegans, who were further inland. The Narragansett, a little to the south in what's now Rhode Island. And the Pequots, further south still in Connecticut. And first war broke out with the with the Pequots in um, 1636, and uh, you know here the the English colonists, both of um, Plymouth Colony and the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which had been established by this point, played upon rivalries among the indigenous peoples. They actually made an alliance with the Narragansett and the Mohegans against the Pequot, and waged a campaign, very bloody campaign which essentially eliminated the Pequot as an impediment to English colonization of southern New England, punctuated by the famous Mystic Massacre in what's now uh, Mystic, Connecticut, in which a Pequot village was destroyed and its inhabitants killed. But the far greater affair still was um, King Philip's War, as it was called, of um, 1675 to 76, with the King Philip in question actually being Metacom, the new chief of the Wampanoags, and the son of Massasoit, who had actually sat down with the Puritans at that first Thanksgiving in Plymouth in 1621. Tension had been building, of course, over the inevitable expansion of the frontier into indigenous territory. And it all came to a head in June 1675, when three Wampanoag warriors were executed by the authorities of Plymouth for the murder of one John Sassamon, who was a uh, a Wampanoag man who had converted to Christianity and had um, fallen in with the with the settlers and been a uh, an interpreter for them, kind of a go-between between them and the Wampanoag. And in the ensuing war. The settlers, surprise, surprise, turned on their former allies, the Narragansett, who now joined uh, Metacom's coalition 
along with the Abenaki of what's now Vermont and the Mohawk of the St. Lawrence River Valley, and uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which was among the sources I consulted to get a little bit more up to speed on this in greater detail than is provided in Melanie Kirkpatrick's book, says that this was probably one of the bloodiest conflicts per capita in American history, with a loss of some 3,000 Indian lives and 600 colonists, and marked the end of a significant indigenous resistance to English colonization of New England. I'm going to do a little reading from uh, Melanie Kirkpatrick's chapter, Day of Mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, of course. Now, I have to take issue with some of her terminology, particularly her use of the word extremists (laughs) to uh, refer to people who reject the celebration of Thanksgiving, or at least reject the celebration of Thanksgiving, you know, in a day of gluttony. Extremist is kind of a loaded word. Melanie, I hate to tell you, um, when the uh, anti-Thanksgiving activists, so to speak, actually start blowing up turkey delivery trucks, then you can call them extremists. Until such time, let's be a little bit more distanced, shall we? And just refer to them as dissidents. She writes, um, there is a small group of extremists in the Native American community who adhere to a radical view of Thanksgiving Day. Their viewpoint was summed up by the comedian and political commentator John Stewart, In the quip, quote, I celebrated Thanksgiving in an old-fashioned way. I invited everyone in my neighborhood to my house. We had an enormous feast, and then I killed them and took their land. Ha, 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 ha. Anti-Thanksgiving activists reject the holiday, viewing it as the beginning of the end for the indigenous peoples of North America. A University of Texas professor has argued for Thanksgiving to be replaced with a National Day of Atonement and Collective fasting to acknowledge the genocide of indigenous peoples that is central to the creation of the United States. Thanksgiving, writes Robert Jensen, is a white supremacist holiday. The most extreme example of Native Americans rejecting Thanksgiving is found in Plymouth. Every Thanksgiving day since 1970, a group of Native Americans gather there to mark what they call a National Day of Mourning. Thanksgiving, they say, is a reminder of the genocide of millions of Native people, the theft of Native lands, and the relentless assault on Native culture. While most of their countrymen feast, these nonconformists fast. The idea for a day of mourning in memory of Indians who have died since the arrival of the Europeans dates back to 1836. William Appis, a Methodist minister who was part Pequot, called for Indians to observe a solemn remembrance on Forefathers' Day, the anniversary of the Pilgrims' arrival at Plymouth. Apeth was among the first public advocates of equal rights for Indians. In his sermons and books, he exoriated non-Native Americans for what he saw as their savage mistreatment of Indians. Note the perhaps inappropriate uh, attempted neutrality in her wording here what he saw as their savage mistreatment of Indians. He was a powerful public speaker, and as an itinerant minister, he carried the message to many congregations in New England. He was also one of the first prominent Native American writers, author of 
the influential eulogy on King Philip, the Wampanoag leader and son of Massasoit, who led the losing Indian forces in the bloody King Philip's War. After Philip's death, as Apeth relates, in unsettling detail, his body was quartered, his hands were cut off, and his head was set on a stake in Plymouth, where it stayed on public display for years. All right, so I'm just going to interject here. (laughs) Think about that. How many of you listening tonight knew that? Bet you didn't learn that in school. You might have learned about Massasoit, who sat down with the Puritans at that uh, first Thanksgiving at Plymouth in 1621. Bet you didn't learn that his son, a generation later, would have his severed head displayed on a stake for years at Plymouth, the site of that first Thanksgiving. To return to the reading... The first modern National Day of Mourning took place on Thanksgiving Day, 1970. That year was the 350th anniversary of the landing of the Pilgrims in Plymouth, and Frank James, a Wampanoag, had been invited by the organizers of the local festivities to give a speech at a celebratory dinner. When the organizers learned that James intended to use the occasion not to focus on the friendship between the Pilgrims and his Wampanoag ancestors, but rather to mourn the near extinction of his tribe and the wider tragedy of the continent's Native American people. They demanded that he revise his speech. He refused and withdrew from the anniversary program. There are many poignant passages in James's undelivered speech, which he signed with his native name, Wamsuta, The tone is mournful rather than angry or combative, read at a distance of more than 50 years in an age marked by ruder rhetoric. His speech seems mildly phrased, more of a song of sorrow for the Indian people than an indictment of the pilgrims. He wrote, quote, We, the Wampanoag, welcomed you, the white man, with open arms, little knowing that it was the beginning of the end that before 50 years were to pass, the Wampanoag would no longer be a free people, end quote. James's exclusion from the anniversary proceedings sparked anger among some in the Native American community, to the extent that James and a group calling themselves the United American Indians of New England, UAN, decided to hold a protest on Thanksgiving Day. That was 1970. Since then, Indians and non-Native supporters gather at noon every Thanksgiving day near the statue of Massasoit at the top of Coles Hill overlooking Plymouth Harbor. The rally on Coles Hill is followed by a march through Plymouth's historic downtown district and then a potluck meal in the social hall of a local church where those who have been fasting break their fast. Frank James died in 2001. His son... Munanum James, and Matoan Monroe, a Lakota Dakota, lead the annual protest today. In 1997, participants tangled with police who said they needed a permit for the rally, though that had never been a requirement in the past, and arrested several marchers for disorderly conduct when they refused to disperse. The case was resolved in 1998 
With both the police and protesters cleared of wrongdoing, the town agreed to pay Yuane's legal fees, along with $100,000 toward educational programs on Native American history. It also agreed to put up two plaques. One, placed in Plymouth's post office square, honors Metacomet, a.k.a. King Philip. The other plaque offers what Yuane calls an alternative view of Thanksgiving, and it stands in a prominent spot on Coles Hill. It characterizes Thanksgiving as, quote, a day of remembrance and spiritual connection, as well as a protest of the racism and oppression which Native Americans continue to experience, end quote. Activists on the other coast have been holding their own Thanksgiving alternative on the island of Alcatraz in San Francisco Bay since 1975. Originally called Un-Thanksgiving Day, the event began as a commemoration of the occupation of the abandoned island, formerly a prison, of course, by activists in the Red Power Movement from November 1969 to June 1971. The Alcatraz occupation marked the unofficial start of the modern-day Indian rights movement. Today, the Thanksgiving alternative event is organized by the International Indian Treaty Council, an advocacy group for Indian rights that has consultative status at the United Nations. In the mid-2000s, the Council rejected the name on Thanksgiving as too controversial, too confrontational, and replaced it with Indigenous Peoples Thanksgiving, which is viewed as a more appropriate characterization of the event. Indigenous Peoples Thanksgiving gets underway before dawn on Pier 33 on San Francisco's waterfront, where participants line up in the dark to catch the first boat to Alcatraz at 4.45 a.m. Once on the island, the participants, typically several thousand people, gather in a massive circle around a sacred fire to welcome the dawn. There are drummers, dancers, speeches, and songs. It is a solemn spiritual event. The gathering concludes by 9 a.m. in time for participants to get home and put a turkey in the oven. <laughs> Unlike the protesters at the much smaller National Day of Mourning in Plymouth, Many of the participants in the Alcatraz event celebrate Thanksgiving with their families in the usual way. In a way, the indigenous people's Thanksgiving is a throwback to the time when Americans went to church on Thanksgiving morning before heading home to dinner. So too, the Native American Thanksgiving ceremonies on Alcatraz feed the soul. It is a time for remembering one's ancestors and reflecting on one's blessings. The rest of the day is devoted to family gatherings and an enormous feast. <laughs> so, of course, she has to close the chapter on that note, being a um, Thanksgiving booster. She also, in that same chapter, quotes the uh, chief of the Mashpee Wampanoag Nation on Cape Cod, Cedric Cromwell, who explains the complex nature of the holiday for many Native Americans. In a Thanksgiving message to his community, Chief Cromwell wrote, quote, The Thanksgiving holiday is a complicated day for our people. We are forever entwined with the American Thanksgiving myth, however inaccurate it may be. End quote. Without offering judgments, Cromwell lists the choices that Native Americans face 
as they decide how to mark the holiday. Quote, some of our people choose to observe this as a day of mourning. Some choose to celebrate in a thoroughly American way. Many choose a different path, spending the day with family and friends, but acknowledging our unique history and connection to this day, end quote. And what is going on with the Wampanoag today, you may ask? And there was a, uh, a recent affair concerning the Wampanoag, which is definitely worthy of note. Now, um, this book that I've been reading from, Thanksgiving, The Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience by Melanie Kirkpatrick, is a reissue of um, a book which originally came out in um, 2016. And the uh, events which I'm going to discuss took place after 2016. So Melanie Kirkpatrick can be forgiven for not um, touching on them, although she could have mentioned them in uh, the new introduction, which she wrote, and failed to. But uh, I covered it on my website, countervortex.org. I'm going to do a little bit of um, reading from the, uh, the journalism that I did about these events, which uh, did not get nearly enough media attention, mostly local media coverage within Massachusetts, very little national coverage despite its uh, very significant implications for Native Americans across the United States, a little bit of a historical and political background. For the most part, the Native American nations, which are recognized by the federal government, do not actually have title to their reservation lands. The lands are technically owned, in nearly all cases, by the uh, Department of the Interior, which holds them in trust, as the terminology goes, for the Native peoples. This doctrine actually uh, dates all the way back to the um, uh, so-called Cherokee Indian cases that the Supreme Court decided back in the 1830s. But there was a period in the, um, in the 1950s when the federal government adopted a policy of what was called termination, which was really just a form of land grabbing, where the, uh, the government would decide with various dubious historical justifications that uh, they would seize recognizing a tribe and dissolve its tribal government and, um, and reservation and take away their reservation lands. There were um, two tribes which were entirely disestablished in terms of their federal recognition and lost their federally recognized land rights in this period, the uh, Klamath of Oregon and the Menominee of Wisconsin. Generations later, about a generation later, I guess, in the 1970s, after a period of political campaigning and during, you know, the whole red power upsurge of that era, they did win back their federal recognition and, uh, I believe, most of their lands. And it came to be recognized that, you know, the so-called termination policy was yet another shameful episode of dirty dealing with the indigenous inhabitants of this continent. But uh, lo and behold, the Trump administration actually revived it, and the indigenous nation in question was none other than the Wampanoag, or the Mashpee Wampanoag, one of the constituent tribes of the Confederacy. That same, which is celebrated in the sentimentalized and sanitized version of the Thanksgiving story that we all learn in elementary school, 
life's little ironies. Okay, I am going to uh, read from an account on my website, countervortex.org, that I wrote on October 28th, 2018. Native Americans unite against termination threat. At its 75th annual convention in Denver this week, leaders of the National Congress of American Indians spoke strongly against the Trump administration's decision to halt the restoration of ancestral lands to the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe of Massachusetts, invoking a return to the disastrous policies of the termination era. At issue are 321 acres in the towns of Mashpee and Taunton, where the Wampanoag sought to build a casino. The U.S. Interior Department issued a decision in 2015 to take the lands into trust for the tribe to be added to their reservation. Ground was broken on the casino the following year, but opponents of the casino challenged the land transfer in the courts. In April 2016, U.S. District Judge William Young found the 2015 interior decision had bypassed the Supreme Court's 2009 ruling in Carcieri v. Salazar concerning a land recovery effort by the Narragansett Indian Nation of Rhode Island. In the Carcieri case, the High Court ruled that the federal government had no power to grant land in trust for tribes recognized after passage of the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, which was the law which established the contemporary reservation system. In September of this year, meaning 2018, the interior decision was reversed by Tara Sweeney, the new Assistant Secretary for Indian Affairs in the Trump administration. Sweeney determined that the Mashpee Wampanoag, whose ancestors welcomed some of the first settlers to the Americas more than 300 years ago, could not have their homelands restored because they were only federally recognized in 2007. Some 200 members and supporters of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe marched through the Cape Cod town of Mashpee on October 6, 2018, to protest the Trump administration's reversal of their land recovery effort. Since the interior decision was announced, investors have announced that they are pulling out of the casino project. But the uh, Mashpee Wampanoag Tribal Council Chairman, Cedric Cromwell, emphasized that there are bigger issues at stake. Quote, it's truly about the land we stand on, the blood and bones of our ancestors that come from this land. End quote. Okay, so that was... Um, October of 2018, where the Trump administration basically barred an effort by the Mashpee Wampanoag to recover some of their lost lands. But after that, it actually got worse, much worse. Okay, I'm reading now from an account on my website, countervortex.org, from April 2nd, 2020, last year. Mashpee Wampanoag Nation disestablished, quote-unquote. The chairman of the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe announced March 27th, 2020, that the U.S. Secretary of the Interior has issued an order disestablishing its reservation on Massachusetts Cape Cod and taking its land out of federal trust 
Chairman Cedric Cromwell said in a statement, quote, Today, on the very day the United States has reached a record 100,000 confirmed cases of the coronavirus, and our tribe is desperately struggling with responding to this devastating pandemic, the Bureau of Indian Affairs informed me that the Secretary of the Interior has ordered that our reservation be disestablished and that our land be taken out of trust. Not since the termination era of the mid-20th century has the Secretary taken action to disestablish a reservation, unquote. In ordering that the tribe's land be removed from federal trust, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt apparently relied on the U.S. Supreme Court's 2009 ruling in Carcieri versus Salazar. In that case, the High Court found that the federal government lacked authority to acquire land and hold it in trust for tribes that were not recognized as, quote, Indian tribes under federal jurisdiction, unquote, when the Indian Reorganization Act was enacted. The IRA, enacted in 1934, authorized the Secretary of the Interior to buy land and hold it in trust for Native Americans, as well as giving reservations limited powers of self-government. The Mashpee Wampanoag were only federally recognized in 2007. The current controversy stems from a legal challenge brought by nearby residents to the tribe's plan to establish a casino on reservation lands newly acquired in 2015. A federal judge in Massachusetts ruled in April 2016 that the new land acquisition violated the Carcieri decision. The acquisition was formally reversed by the Interior Department in September 2018, as we already noted. Bernhardt's new decision, that is to say, Interior Secretary, then Interior Secretary David Bernhardt's new decision to remove all the tribe's lands from federal trust, follows a ruling by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit last month, that is to say, March 2020, upholding the district court ruling against the tribe. Bernhardt's decision was assailed by Massachusetts Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey in a joint statement asserting that the tribe has a right, quote, a right to their ancestral homeland, no matter what craven political games the Trump administration tries to play, end quote. On March 30th, that is to say of last year, March 30th, 2020, the Mashpee Wampanoag filed a motion asking the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia to issue an emergency order that would delay the removal of its land from trust pending judicial review. Quote, while the tribe is grateful for this temporary reprieve, we remain deeply concerned about the fate of our reservation, Chairman Cromwell said in a statement. That said, the outpouring of support from both the Native and non-Native community gives us hope and bolsters our courage. So this is some seriously outrageous bullshit, if you'll forgive my language. The Mashpee Wampanoag tried to get back a little bit of their land, and then they wind up losing all of their land in this uh, egregious throwback to the termination era by the, uh, the Trump administration. The story, I am happy to say, does have a happy ending. The uh, case challenging the dissolution of their tribal government and reservation by the Interior Department was on its way to a uh, federal appeals court in Washington, D.C., when Trump left office. And the next month, February of this year, 2021, the new Biden administration dropped the case and let stand the lower court ruling, which had blocked the Interior Department from revoking the tribe's 
reservation designation, finding that it had been, quote, arbitrary, capricious, and abuse of discretion, and contrary to law, end quote. So with that, the uh, lower court ruling stands, and this uh, little effort at neo-termination concerning the Mashpee Wampanoag comes to an end. Thank goodness. And there's been some other progress since then. I will note that the current Secretary of the Interior, appointed by the Biden administration, is for the first time a Native American, Deb Haaland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo people of New Mexico, and a longtime fighter for environmental justice. And it was just announced today, as a matter of fact, that the uh, newly appointed director of the National Park Service is for the first time a Native American, Charles Sams of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation, which straddles the borders of Oregon and Washington. And finally, I will note the uh, historic Supreme Court decision of last July, July 2020, in which the high court ruled by a five to four vote that a large part of eastern Oklahoma, including the city of Tulsa, remains Native American territory. The case was uh, brought by a Native American man who had been convicted of sex crimes in Oklahoma State Court and argued that because he was a member of the Muscogee Creek Nation and the alleged crime took place on tribal land, he was not subject to the jurisdiction of local and state courts. Instead, he claimed to be subject to the jurisdiction of the Creek Nation and federal authorities. And in a decision written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, the generally reactionary Trump appointee, the court agreed, citing the 1866 U.S. Treaty with the Creek Nation, which the uh, majority of the justices found had not been legally abrogated by Congress. So, a rather momentous decision, finding that uh, about a third of Oklahoma remains Native American territory. And, uh, you know, this has tremendous implications for the whole question of resource exploitation on some of the, you know, the vast federal land holdings of the American West, particularly uh, the lands covered by the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty with the Lakota, or Sioux, which concerns the long-standing corporate plans for uh, mineral exploitation in the Black Hills of South Dakota, so we're living in very interesting times. This really sort of, uh, you know, crystallizes the very strange historical moment that this country is facing, where finally there's actually a long overdue reckoning with the whole legacy of land theft, oppression, racism, slavery, and genocide, which was an absolutely integral and inexorable part of the whole historical process which made the United States the globe-spanning empire that it is today, at the same time that the very worst intransigent exponents of this legacy are back with a vengeance. And on the same day that it was announced that finally we have a uh, Native American at the head of the National Park Service, we saw the travesty of justice that went down in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And even as the highest court in the land has recognized unextinguished Native American sovereignty over a third of Oklahoma, the Trump administration was bringing back the termination policies of the 1950s and actually attempted to extinguish the Mashpee Wampanoag 
as a federally recognized people, and once again, expropriate their lands. So, food for thought. And on the subject of food, (laughs) no matter what you choose to do on Thursday, whether you're going to be feasting or fasting, I just urge you to uh, think about this stuff. Just meditate on it a little bit. And a uh, worthwhile read, even if I do um, take issue with certain aspects of it, I don't quite see eye-to-eye with the author. Nonetheless, a, uh, a worthwhile and thought-provoking read, Thanksgiving, the Holiday at the Heart of the American Experience, by Melanie Kirkpatrick. Uh, 400th Anniversary Edition, 1621-2021, to 2021, reissued this year with a new introduction by the author. Okay, this has been Bill Weinberg of the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.